Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Today we are continuing where we left off with part two of my interview with Keegan Chandler. In our last episode, we spent most of our time talking about UAPs and the evidence that has come to light for their existence, as well as non-human origin. Today, we are shifting gears to focus on the faith question. If aliens exist, what would that mean for Christian theology? What biblical categories exist to think about non-human intelligences? The answer Chandler provides may surprise you. Here now is episode 509, Theological Options for Understanding Non-Human Intelligence with Keegan Chandler. seem to be pointing to a potential overlap between science and what religions have been saying. How do you see this information impacting the ongoing discussion about faith versus science? That's a great question. There is potential for a significant overlap between what science has said or could say about potential NHI that might be revealed and also what with what religions have been saying for a very long time. Historians will tell you that In the 17th century, roughly, there occurred what historians have recognized as a divergence of methodologies between science and theology in the Western world. Prior to this, they were often considered to be closely related disciplines, if not the same thing. And ultimately, I think it's possible that in the future, maybe even in the near future, so-called scientifically inclined people will wake up very surprised by the fact that they are entertaining ideas remarkably similar to what the members of religions have been saying for a very long time. The realm of quantum physics, for example, already looks and sounds sometimes very similar to a lot of what we find in uh, some religions, for example, in uh, traditional Chinese religion and philosophy. And this fact was recognized actually by physicists like uh, Niels Bohr himself, Uh, the so-called founder of quantum physics. Uh, But I I won't go into all of that. The big idea materializing in front of me here is that religions and our scientific institutions are now starting to reconvene to at least speak something of a similar language. And that's very interesting to me. It's interesting that our dominant institutions, some of which consider themselves in decidedly post-religious terms, Some of these institutions are now stirring with talk of flying objects and non-human intelligence. They're talking about the idea that humanity is not alone in the universe. Meanwhile, the claim that humanity is not alone has been the clarion call of most religions in history. So as a historian and as a scholar of religion, this apparent convergence is all very fascinating to me. It'll be very interesting to see how the global conversation unfolds. Well, let's talk about Christianity in particular. Why do you think this topic is difficult for Christians to think about and investigate and take seriously? Formulating good, educated answers to the question of alien life or NHI, this is going to be a challenging project for humans in general. 
okay, to say the least, because in order to do a good job cutting through the very complex data, in order to make informed conclusions about it, it ultimately requires drawing on a wide range of investigatory disciplines as you're working through the information and trying to develop hypotheses about it. At a minimum, you're going to be engaging in history, psychology, uh, biological science, physics, material science, perhaps also even cognitive science, especially on certain interpretations of uh, the phenomena we, that we discussed earlier. And as a Christian, in addition to having to work in all of these different areas with this, you'll also have the added element of theology, right? All of this is hard enough to deal with, and now we add theology into the mix. And depending on what sort of Christian theology you're aiming to start or end up with, you'll also need to engage biblical studies as well, since you'll need to reconcile the biblical data with this new information about UAPs and NHI. And, and then to make things even more difficult, in addition to all of this, you'll be working with data sets and fielding certain premises, which are possibly quite different and even perceptibly antagonistic towards your preconceived theological ideas, even your preconceived scientific understanding of the world and our place within the world. And <laughs> it just keeps getting better. To top it all off, you have the sociological problem that you'll eventually have to work through. And you'll probably have to work through that one in a very personal way, too, as your friends and your family, possibly even uh, your job, for some reason, uh, they'll treat you as a pariah for even daring to think about it all and take it seriously. So together, all these requirements of you are expected to make investigating this subject, or really this family of subjects, very difficult for the vast majority of people, including Christians. And so we shouldn't be surprised that rather than putting years of effort into thinking about these things, you know, rather than dedicating one's mind to solving this, you know, what's only one of the greatest continuing enigmas of human history, many Christians have and uh, likely will find it easier to just go along with the crowd, so to speak, and to ridicule and denigrate this topic as not worthy of their time as the uh, rest of contemporary society has done, or should I say society's dominant institutions, it's scientific, governmental, and academic institutions. Uh, on the other hand, some Christians appear to already have shied away from this topic, uh, citing an excuse that aliens or NHI, well, they're all demons or this subject is associated with the devil or with negative supernatural forces, or that, yes, all of this is real, but it's all part of a program of demonic deception. So some Christians, at least, you know, they'll say they don't want anything to do with it because it's all evil or related to occult practices. So there can be both a secular social stigma, which presumes to be motivated by science, and then on the other hand, religious people like Christians can face another kind of religious stigma from their religious community, or even what, I, what we might call a, a self-imposed sense of taboo. And they'll have to work through all of this before confronting the subject with the discipline required to make educated guesses as, as to what's going on. But I'll, I'll, I'll say this, I think that choosing to take this subject seriously 
has the potential to be highly theologically rewarding and and not just for Christians, but potentially for all human beings, even those who at present claim to be uninterested in religion or in the questions raised by religions or about religions. Because eventually, as you think long enough about these things, you start to realize that the topic of UAP and NHI is something of a conduit for even more important questions, but maybe even more abstruse questions uh, for human life, which are perhaps even more difficult to prove empirically. For example, why are we here? <laughs> Who created us? Is there a God? What's the final of humans? So I think asking these questions about UAPs creates a, a sort of gateway towards the even bigger questions, which have troubled our collective human soul for, for time out of mind. And it's therefore worth pursuing as both humans who have a need to know, I think, and also as Christians who have a need to know and should have a passion to know. And I do think that religions in general should engage in this global conversation and they should do so immediately. And that religious people like Christians, rather than seeing this whole subject as somehow automatically antithetical to faith, I think they should embrace it as a worthy challenge. And even as potentially the next stage of human growth and the development of religion, both humanity in general and Christians especially, I think need to find a way to adapt as the human story unfolds to include new awareness about our world and about our place within it. Just as, for example, Christians of yesteryear uh, needed to grapple with letting go of a geocentric model or discovering the earth was round or any number of things. And whether Christians like it or not, I think it's possible that a new scientific dawn may be approaching. It's possible. And so collectively, religions like Christianity, as well as individuals who are a part of them, they're going to ultimately have serious decisions to make regarding their um, commitment to certain inherited interpretive frameworks. And also, they're going to have to make decisions about what their future theological interpretations are going to look like. And on a personal level, whether they're religion that as they received it still cuts it for them. Uh, so I know that was a long way of getting around to this, but to get back to your question, on the one hand, I see that religions, including Christianity, shouldn't have much to fear from the subject in the sense that Christianity is not likely to fall apart or to be completely abandoned in droves. But that's not to say that the adjustment won't be difficult. All of this that I've just described would be very difficult for many people. And I'm probably just scratching the surface in terms of how this new information could pose a challenge for your average Christian to work through. And frankly, this may already be a difficult task for many people who are in the middle of this right now and are watching the same news programs that you are, Sean, about congressional hearings and public sightings. And they're having possibly a growing fear that they're going to have to confront this from a theological perspective. And they're going to have to do so with without the tools and the knowledge and the training that they might want to have. And that's a kind of shock that will be probably hard for people to work through. But in the end, I think that figuring out how Christian theology and the Bible might exist alongside of this information. I mean, as Christians, as purported lovers of truth, and that's all truth, by the way, this is a task which seems incumbent on, on Christians, not just theologians or biblical scholars, but 
on Christians anywhere. And this is because Christians understand themselves to be people who are not just committed to truth in a general sense, but they're people who are committed to the person of God, to the God of truth, and to the person of Jesus Christ. And so in this light, to me, the truth of this matter is a topic that deserves to be taken seriously. And I don't think it's much of a stretch to suggest also that how Christians end up handling or interpreting this potential new reality, this has implications for both Christendom and perhaps even our planet at large, at least Western culture, much of which has been shaped in many ways by Christianity and the Bible. So I think that you're wanting to bring this situation to the surface and to discuss it couldn't be more timely in light of uh, what's going on and the global conversation. There's simply no better time than now for Christians to become educated on this topic and to start thinking about it in a serious way. Yeah, I mean, going back to the whole faith versus science thing, you know, I, I would say that that has always been a misnomer and that this has been just uh, an unnecessary dichotomy. You know, the all the scientific revolution founders were were Christians or people of other faiths. You know, it's it's not like it's not like atheism gave us, you know, all this all these like technological discoveries throughout history. You know, it's just the new kid on the block and it's not even that popular really. I, I would imagine that there are many, many scientists who are people of faith even to this day. And and furthermore, it's the scientists who keep telling us, oh no, there's there's nothing to see here. Since COVID, Keegan, I'd say that science in general has lost a lot of credibility. And uh, so has like big government and this whole idea that, you know, just trust the government. They have your best interest at heart. It's not a faith versus science thing, as you eloquently said. And I think speaking as a Christian, you know, the way I think of it is Jesus is the savior of humanity. Why wouldn't God have other civilizations, other projects going throughout the universe. I mean, I don't know that he does, but like, why wouldn't he? I don't know. Presumably they would have their own situation worked out with God. Uh, But if you're a human being, then Jesus is the savior for you. You know, Jesus isn't saving the dogs or the chickens or the worms. You know, he's just saving (laughs) the humans. So I guess that's kind of how I think about it a little bit. Uh, would you say that Christian theological discussions about the existence of non-human intelligences, NHIs, is this something new, or have Christians been talking about this for a long time? Yeah, great question. Uh, there is an entire field, actually, uh, which I suspect may be become increasingly popular and useful, a field called exotheology. This term exotheology uh, describes a field of interest of uh, Christian theologians who have entertained questions about extraterrestrial life. And uh, actually one of the first and most well-known modern Christians to address this topic was actually uh, C.S. Lewis in a 1950 article. Uh, But Jewish and Islamic theologians have also engaged in exotheology. And recently the Catholic Church has taken up discussions along these lines with, uh, I believe it's the chief astronomer of the Vatican Observatory. He's also one of the papal advisors. Uh, He's recently confirmed that the Catholic Church is very open to the possibility of extraterrestrial life and has no issues uh, with fitting this fact into Catholic theology. Actually, I should say that this discussion about NHIs out there in the universe, this is a question for Western thought that is very old. Uh, It goes way back into the early years, even to the uh, 
so-called golden years of Greek philosophy, this question of intelligent life was being asked. And typically, uh, the way this has been broken down is in the context of the what we called earlier the ETH or the extraterrestrial hypothesis. There's been a debate between two positions, uh, which we could formalize as what's called um, anthroposalism, ourselves alone, versus cosmic pluralism, the idea that there are a plurality of, of worlds with life. And again, this has been a debate that's gone back about as far as we can remember in terms of Western philosophy. Uh, as I mentioned, in the Golden Age, it was a common conclusion that there were life and other worlds. Pythagoras, so he's in the 5th century BCE, uh, he thought the moon was inhabited. Later, Epicurus, uh, Plutarch said something similar. Uh, but others disputed this idea. Um, Parmenides, um, if I'm not mistaken, Plato and Aristotle also dismissed cosmic pluralism. But in an interesting way, all of this discussion uh, perhaps uh, paved the way, in a sense, for this topic to be entertained by uh, the so-called church fathers. So these topics, this debate has been mentioned by several church fathers, um, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, uh, Jerome. Um, these were evidently open to the possibility of life in other worlds, though, from my recollection, Augustine thought that this planet was the only one that had life on it. But uh, Well, he's the always point, the guy at the party that's looking uh, looking to spoil everyone's fun anyhow. He is something of a killjoy. <laughs> Glowering um, in the corner. I don't believe any of it. <laughs> the point is that Christian theologians have continued what is a very ancient debate in Western history. And it's interesting to me that this topic hasn't been widely discussed, probably by most Christians today. And I think there are complicated sociological reasons for that. But some Christian writers today have definitely engaged with it seriously and have kept this theological discussion about UFOs and NHI uh, going strong. Modern evangelicals especially have engaged this subject at a popular level. Lots and lots of books have been written from an evangelical perspective about aliens, flying saucers, and these subjects are usually interpreted in these texts to be demons or fallen angels. Often in these books, there are discussions of eschatology, of some role that aliens are to play in some kind of end times deception. Some of these books even include discussions about the Vatican and its role in future global engagements with aliens, which are expected to have something to do with end times prophecy. These books are something of an alphabet soup, where if you stare at certain scriptures long enough, then you can piece together letters which maybe appear to spell out some predetermined understanding we have of aliens and flying craft. <laughs> but from both a historical and theological perspective, whether you agree with all of these interpretations or not, they can at least be appreciated, I think, as an attempt by Christian pastors and authors to engage seriously with what I think is a serious topic. Uh, though, of course, whether you think these kinds of writers are successful and how they reconcile the biblical and scientific data, uh, or whether you find them theologically persuasive, that's ultimately another matter. But I think this genre of literature is another example, at least, of how Christians have tried to deal with this situation long before the current renaissance, we could say, of popular interest. 
Right. And so what, what have they said? You know, what, what are the various theological options for the existence of extraterrestrial life or NHIs? Extraterrestrial life or NHI are thought to potentially impact uh, Christian theology in a variety of ways. Among the more uh, sober academic discussions that have been had, soteriology seems to take front and center the question of um, how it is that Jesus atones for or saves human beings. Also, what bearing does the fact of human salvation have upon the possibility of life beyond our planet? Does Jesus' death atone for alien life as well? Does God only care about and make provision for human beings? You know, if God saves through the human being Jesus, how might he save other types of beings, right? You've alluded to some of these ideas already. And, you know, many Christians believe in a metaphysical fall of humanity that occurred in the Garden of Eden, as described in the book of Genesis. So some have imagined that one way around this big soteriological problem is simply to assume that other planets simply had no such fall and therefore require no salvation. I think you mentioned something along these lines yourself as a possibility. Well, that's uh, uh, that's C.S. Lewis's Out of a Silent Planet uh, book, uh, which was was a really fascinating thought experiment that people might be freshly interested in. Right. And I know you're also interested in Christology, Sean, and I'm sure you and your audience would also be interested to know how often Christology does come up in these discussions about extraterrestrial life, uh, namely in questions about the traditional doctrine of the Incarnation. And on that note, I think that Trinitarians uh, will have a more challenging time ahead of themselves than, for example, Unitarian Christians will with some of these questions. If the second person of the Trinity became incarnate as a human being, what does that mean for salvation on other planets? Typically, Trinitarians will say that the second person of the Trinity is still human or still retains a human nature and always will. And this would seem to kind of narrow God's soteriological focus on human beings in a peculiar way, which seems to create questions about God's interest in other beings and about technically how God might save other beings in the cosmos. Yeah, that's a real, that's a real problem, isn't it? Right. In a few different ways, perhaps. If you think salvation requires God becoming incarnate to pay for the sins of the beings that he's saving, does his assumption of a human nature prohibit the second person from incarnating to save other kinds of people? Or does he have the ability to take on myriad natures? All of it just seems a bit more complicated, at least at first glance. Meanwhile, for a Unitarian Christian view, Jesus, the human being, is representative of the human race. God chooses him to play the role of Savior for humans. And it's easy to imagine, then, that God could choose other beings to represent and or atone for the sins of their own kind. But, of course, I'll, I will point out that regardless of Christology, there are biblical passages which are very anthropocentric, uh, to use the, the term I referenced earlier. Passages which indicate Jesus' exaltation and power and authority over the angels, right? So over other beings or other kinds of beings in the cosmos. 
Okay, so that's very interesting, right? So which angels are we talking about? All of the angels? I mean, the, the questions we can get into here are endless and uh, very interesting to think about. But to me, it just seems at first glance that Unitarian Christians may at least have less questions to deal with, at least in terms of soteriology than their Trinitarian neighbors. And in terms of the other ways that this can possibly affect Christian theology, like I've um, implied, it really depends on your starting point. And also whether you attribute the phenomenon to exclusively negative or even evil agendas, all of that's going to affect the eschatological views of many Christians who will be more than ready to read their situation into the so-called end times and to bring these NHI right along with them uh, to play various roles in their interpretation of uh, the book of Revelation, etc. Uh, but I think there is an aspect of the UAP NHI phenomena that does have a lot of potential to be disruptive to most Christian theological paradigms. And that is the potential impact that this information could have on the question of the creation of human beings. Uh, this is something, a topic that is often brought up in uh, UFO circles. What relationship could these NHI have to human origins? And this is just something that I feel that most Christians will probably just not want to talk about. If it ends up being determined or claimed, for example, that human beings are the result of genetic manipulation, they're the byproduct of genetic interference of pre-existing hominids on this planet thousands of years ago, this is something that's sometimes discussed, how would Christians fit this idea with the idea that God created humanity? As I mentioned, some sectors of Christianity have had a hard time reconciling evolution with the doctrine of creation, even though that is not at all a difficult task from my perspective. Uh, but it is nevertheless proven difficult for many people. And so a similar, if not much more significant difficulty, I think would likely exist if it were suggested that NHI were responsible or participated in some way in the production of human beings. However, and I'll just say this at least, uh, while some at first glance may perceive an outright contradiction here, I think there are actually potential theological explanations for this as well, some of which I've thought about for some time and that I'll probably keep working on in the future. But ultimately, whether most people would find these explanations biblically, intellectually, or emotionally, uh, satisfactory or not is an interesting question for the future. Okay, so what would be some theological options for interpreting UAPs and NHIs? How could we conceive of them from a Christian perspective? Well, there are a variety of options, as I've already hinted at, but before I lay out what I think those could be, I, I feel the need to make a most important point that I don't think I've um, gotten across yet. If your audience hears nothing else, as I've warbled on about all of this, I'd like to at least get this point across. In general, it seems to me that Christians already believe in NHIs. Okay, I'll say that again. Christians already believe in NHIs. Christians typically don't call them NHIs. They don't call them aliens either. But they have other words for them, I think, like angel, spirit, 
demon, etc. What I'm suggesting is that we currently have a tremendous category problem on our hands. We have juxtaposed and uh, perhaps unwisely the categories of aliens versus angels. I just want to take a step back and ask what these categories are. How did they develop? Uh, how are we using them? When I say the word alien, Sean, you are probably immediately conjuring an image of a gray or a green-skinned little humanoid. This image has just become part of our global culture, uh, even a part of our collective subconscious, you could say. If I say alien, your mind is immediately filling with this image, whether you want it to or not. On the other hand, I think something similar may be happening amongst both Christians and non-Christians when I say the word angel, right, which is a biblical term that simply means messenger. Malach in Hebrew, angelos in Greek, simply means messenger, right? It's actually rather nondescript. But to the vast majority of people, this term angel will immediately bring to mind a very human-looking figure with long flowing robes and wings, maybe a halo, or maybe there's some light shining behind them. This is an image very much informed by medieval European art. But the problem with alien and angel is that to me, these resemble folk categories. They're not scientific categories. They are informed by our culture. And that includes our popular culture and our religious culture. So, but at this stage, we have little idea of what an extraterrestrial life form would really look like or what it could do, how it would exist in the world. At the same time, we have very little understanding from a theological perspective of what the biblical documents refer to as angels really look like or what they could do, how they exist, how they could interact with us. In terms of biblical studies, I think we need to be very careful not to assume a univocal picture of non-human intelligence in the universe across all the books of the Bible, uh, because biblical descriptions range dramatically. Uh, there are descriptions of humanoids, non-human animals, incredible beasts. There are beings with wings and eyes all around. Uh, and actually, most of the time in the biblical literature and also in the um, Second Temple literature, they appear to be indistinguishable from human beings. It's clear to me that most Christians have a bifurcated view of a physical realm and a spiritual realm. And this probably has something to do with the influence of Platonism. But Ultimately, I think most Christians seem to place these beings that they call angels on this spiritual side of this divide. And maybe there are a few verses which could be construed in that way. But I suggest that one interpretive option that may prove helpful to some Christians is to wonder at least if some of the beings in the Bible, which we put under this heading angels, maybe they are not spiritual, whatever that means. But maybe they are as physical or as biological as you and I. Again, the most common description in the biblical documents is of beings which are indistinguishable from humans. Most of the characters that we have collectively identified as angels look indistinguishable from humans. Abraham, it says in Genesis, it says he saw three men. 
And that was it. These men seem very physical, even biological. They eat food that's given to them. The men of Sodom and Gomorrah, it says they took hold of them physically. And on a similar note, in Genesis chapter 6, we have reference to certain non-human intelligences as the sons of God. And these are evidently so biological and so physical, and they're evidently so closely related to us on a genetic level that they can even procreate with human women. Hebrews 13.2 also says Christians should be kind to everyone because some of us have welcomed angels into their house unaware. <laughs> so I think this bifurcated dualistic separation between the physical world of humans and this purely spiritual world of these other entities, angels, spirits, I think it's, I think it may be misleading. Yeah. That could be Cartesian, right? Wasn't Descartes the one that split everything up between physical and spiritual? Yes, there's a lot of Western philosophical history standing behind our impulse to separate things along these lines, yes. But I think this kind of separation may be misleading in the sense that it causes people to imagine that the NHI described in the Bible are, quote, spiritual beings meaning they're automatically not flesh and blood. They're non-organic. They're made of, I don't know, spirit stuff, or they're disembodied or something, rather than what I think is found in the biblical documents. I see something very different, something very physical, something very with us and similar to us. And so I would just caution us as we are thinking about these things to be sure that we are examining the very categories that we are using to taxonomize all of these potential beings in the cosmos or in biblical documents. It may very well be that what we today label NHI or aliens or ET, it might be that these end up being one and the same with what the Bible calls angels. There's certainly no um, biblical barrier to this idea, especially in light of the fact of how broadly the term angel is used and how different the types of biblical beings are, which this word is used to corral. So like I said, I think it might be a helpful starting point for Christian theology on this topic of NHI to simply acknowledge that Christians already believe in some kind or kinds of NHI today. Angels are popularly even understood to be non-human, intelligent, highly capable, advanced, perhaps in terms of their ability to travel and to know and do incredible things. And all of this seems remarkably similar to what people are saying about ET. So I think it's an overlap worth exploring and forms something of a starting place for a few interpretive options as to what's going on. And I'd be happy to lay out some of those options and unless you'd uh, like to jump in. No, I, I, I'm interested in this hypothesis. I, I think it's we have to be careful to say that there are other ways of working out our Christian theology without accepting this identification of NHIs as angels or sons of God or whatever, whatever term you want to use for it. Uh, you agree with that, right, that there be other ways of working it out? Oh, certainly. But this you this you do find to be the most plausible or maybe most interesting uh, way forward. I think, yeah, I think it's the most readily theologically coherent or cohesive, but certainly there are other options. Uh, it may be that these NHI that we are seeing 
are simply other creatures of God who aren't referenced at all in the Bible. There's maybe nothing special going on here in terms of eschatology. Could just be a few of God's creations bumping into each other along the way and saying hi. <laughs> um, <laughs> or they could be getting ready to invade us, and these are their early drones doing reconnaissance before the mothership gets here. This is also a possibility, and that's that's my that least favorite <laughs> option. <laughs> well, it's it's Hollywood's favorite one. It right, right. Be. That's Independence Day and but, all the but, other movies. Let me break these few options down just so we have them all on the table. So first, we just said that it's possible they're just other creatures, and we just so happen to meet each other in this wide world, wide galaxy. It could also be that there's a negative interpretation to take here from a theological perspective, that these entities do correspond to fallen angels or demonic forces, and that there is some program of control or deception going on, some devilish plot to enslave us all. There are various biblical texts which uh, evangelical authors have summoned to this cause. As I mentioned, there's a whole range of literature um, uh, around this idea, but that is one possibility from a theological perspective, that everything that we're seeing is actually related to some sort of malevolent force, which is anti-human, if you will. It could also be that what we are seeing are, uh, in fact, good angels, if you will, an overall positive uh, view, uh, and that these uh, beings are simply looking out for us. Or it could be a mixture of both. Again, I want to always caution us against the fallacy of oversimplification. Again, just look at the variety of human motivations, and that might give you a clue as to the potential variety of different interests that some of these beings might have. I want to bring up very briefly another idea, which is actually very closely related uh, to this theological interpretation that I've leaned heavily into. And that's the idea that what we're seeing may actually correspond to the, quote, gods, as referred to in the Old Testament and also in, in, in ancient Near Eastern literature, or to the divine council, as the uh, late Dr. Michael Heiser uh, was so famous for discussing. But Dr. Heiser famously emphasized certain texts in the Old Testament, which refer to a council of beings. You might call them angels, you might call them gods, but this council of beings was uh, evidently something which God had put great trust in at, at a certain point in human history. Uh, Dr. Heiser wrote a lot on a Deuteronomy 32.8 famous passage. It says this, when, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the people according to the number of the sons of God. There's a few other translations, but, uh, and, and also I'll point out that in some Septuagint manuscripts, it actually reads angels, angels of God for sons of God. So the idea here is that at one point, God divided up the nations of the world and gave them as an inheritance to these sons of God or these gods or members of this divine council or angels of God. <laughs> the idea from Heiser is that at one point there was some sort of program that God had in place, perhaps some sort of guardianship program, but perhaps later there was some sort of abuse or a failure in this program. And this is why 
God seems so angry in Psalm 82 uh, when he says, I have said you are gods, but you shall die like men. That's uh, Psalm 82, 6 and 7. Right. Seems to be very upset there about their tolerance or possibly promotion of injustice among human beings. Yes, that's right. And so, look, in the ancient Israelite worldview and in many of the Old Testament documents, a strong case can be made that the writers take the reality of the gods of the nation seriously. When Moses and other characters warn Israel against worshiping other gods, against communing with spirits, they are not doing this because it's all just a figment of everyone's imagination. They're warning against this because it's real. So this is just another way of thinking about it. Again, like I said, it's very closely related to some of the theological possibilities I've put forward before, but there in the end may be a lot of biblical data that's worth reconsidering um, as we're trying to think about how to reconcile this potential reality of NHI with these biblical documents. Hmm. Fascinating. Were you going to say more about the angel hypothesis, or was that what you wanted to say? No, that was it. Okay, cool. All right, so uh, just wrapping things up here a little bit, uh, why do you think this is an important topic for us humans in general, and for Christians in particular, to take seriously? Why can't I just uh, say, ah, somebody else will figure that out, who cares, pass the salt? I wish I had the luxury of not thinking about this sometimes. (laughs) Because it is a lot, but I do think it is for better. Let's imagine that UAP are, in fact, the product of NHI. Because, again, I believe we're far past the RUAP real stage, and we are in the who or what is behind them part of this inquiry. Let's think about why we might be interested in this as humans, possibly as Christians as well. If you just think about the technological opportunity that exists here for our species, what might be at hand here is is that some other species out there has gone through a heck of a lot to procure these technological advancements. And humanity might be able to leapfrog a lot of time and grief to get a hold of certain things which could, frankly, revolutionize life on planet Earth. Think of the potential benefits of some of the technologies we've heard discussed for climate issues, energy production, uh, transportation, human health. I mean, the possibilities seem endless. Freight. Yellow just went out of business, uh, the trucking company. You know, uh, to be able to ship things all around the world in, in near instantaneous speed would be amazing. We have seen the impact that certain technological and especially medical advancements have made for life on this planet. But what we're talking about now, this could make the scientific revolution of the 16th and 17th centuries look like child's play. If there's even a possibility for this, then I think that we owe humanity and the planet to at least give it our all to attempt to figure this out. And if possible, if it's real, to try to acquire this technology on a wide scale and not secret it away. We should be interested in obtaining this technology for the betterment of life on earth and for the health of the earth itself. And I think Christians might be able to even consider it 
their duty as God's appointed custodians of the earth to seek out these abilities and to ultimately use them to take better care of God's creation. And there's another positive angle um, as well. If we determine that UAP are in fact the product of NHI, it would possibly generate a new sense of kinship among human beings, a kinship which is desperately needed. We're so polarized and tribalized right now, it's not even funny. Absolutely. Well, and we've seen this, right? We've seen this in the congressional hearing. You've got these right-wingers and left-wingers, and they're all buddy-buddy and working together to get to the bottom of this. You're, you're right. It was astounding to see. It really was. And I even remember hearing comments from members on the committee on opposite side of the, uh, sides of the aisle who could not help but remark at this subject's ability to bring people together. It's probably the first time that the House Oversight Committee, which is historically um, used to target your political opponents, it's probably the first time we've ever had such um, bipartisan focus on figuring something out. It's clear that we need more kinship as a, as a human race if we're going to work together on the problems that we face. Today, we see ourselves as different types of humans. We compartmentalize ourselves on the basis of political affiliation, as we've just talked about, on the basis of race, religion, etc. Otherizing people, otherizing people we don't understand is a survival mechanism. And presently, the only candidates for this otherizing are other humans. (laughs) But if there were, in fact, true others, others with a capital O, who are beyond human beings, it's hard to imagine a scenario in which this fact doesn't have at least some psychological resonance among the inhabitants of this world, to the effect that all of us, or at least some of us, and hopefully those in positions of greatest responsibility, might begin to see us as part of a human family. And what's more Christian than encouraging that sort of sentiment? I think Paul himself would appreciate this. Paul, who uh, who said that we are all God's children. So I'm for pursuing any chance to forefront those kinds of ideas on a large scale, on a global scale, if we ever had the opportunity through the discovery of the presence of others in the universe. I recall Ronald Reagan's famous 1987 UN speech that he made to the uh, General Assembly, where he quotes Isaiah and asks if we cannot turn all of our swords into plowshares. He says that we often forget how much unites all the members of humanity. So he says, perhaps we need some outside universal threat to make us recognize this common bond. And then in the most uh, famous part of the speech, he says, I often think how quickly our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. There's a reason I think that this is often a plot point in science fiction, first contact stories, because it's it's very logical that this would happen. By the way, uh, you mentioned C.S. Lewis and science fiction earlier, science fiction authors are simply the prophets of tomorrow. And I think people should definitely pay attention. Yeah, I keep telling myself that when I'm binging on sci-fi on Audible. (laughs) It's an intellectual exercise. (laughs) This is the literature of ideas, Sean. You have nothing to Oh, man, I'm just such a sci-fi nerd. I love it. (laughs) 
well, and on this front, while science fiction has explored these positive angles of this situation that I've mentioned, uh, technological revolution and uh, human bonding, science fiction has also explored a dark side. There is a negative reason, too, why I think we would want to take all of this seriously. Perhaps the best analogy we can use might be the Aztec civilization and the advent of Cortez and the Spanish conquistadors. But one day there were, you know, there was this entire system, a religious system, a political system, an economy, an entire way of being maintained by this civilization. And then one day, some people were standing on the beach. And they looked out over the water and they saw these strange objects approaching. I'm sure at first they had no idea what they were looking at. Their minds probably couldn't fathom what these objects were that were approaching. Maybe there were various interpretations. Maybe they sounded a lot like we do now, Sean, where we're laying out the various possibilities. But as they eventually came on board, some of these interpretations ended up winning out. Perhaps the interpretation that these are the gods, right? That Cortez is the returning god and speculated by some that this is how Cortez was able to so effectively infiltrate and ultimately dominate their society. So this is an angle that we need to keep in mind as well. It's always better that we have more knowledge. My people perish for a lack of knowledge, as has been said. And it can only help and not hurt if we do our best, I think, to sort out what might be going on ahead of these ships reaching the shore when it might be a little too late. Yeah. And at the, at the very least, we need to explain it to ourselves, but we also need to, those of us with children, we need to be able to explain it to our kids. If this is going to happen and if these ships are coming, we got to say something. Yeah, and but... uh, as Christians, we're the ones that are saying we have we have a sacred text that has the answers, the important answers to life in it. You know, maybe it doesn't tell you everything about life, obviously, but uh, it, it, it covers the important. So how do we think of this in light of Scripture? How do we think of it in light of our faith? I... So this is this is huge. And... Yeah, and, and all of this is going to require bravery. It's going to require hard work. But the possibilities on the other side of uh, confronting this subject and not dismissing it all out of hand as something unworthy of our time or as something 100% demonic and taboo, the potential reward is enormous, I think, intellectually at least. Uh, in learning more about these things, which we're only catching a glimpse of, it's possible uh, at least on certain theological interpretations, that Christians may have a chance to glimpse behind the veil of God's creation, to appreciate it more, to learn more about the inner workings of the mysterious beings populating God's universe, and perhaps maybe some beings even working on God's behalf. I've sometimes thought about the biblical reference to the gospel in which it says that the things about the gospel that have been revealed to us, angels have longed to look into these things. That is certainly true. But as for me, 
there's a whole lot that I suspect angels may have seen that I'd long to look into. <laughs> so as we continue to collectively learn perhaps more and more about this subject, hopefully we do, what I would ask Christians uh, to think about is I would ask Christians to discover a new sense of boldness, a new sense of courage, a sense of adventure, not just an open mind to possibilities, but an active curiosity, which compels them into what are frankly uncharted waters, compelled because they feel it's their duty to explore. I think human complacency and a lack of imagination are the real enemies here. And frankly, Christians, they just shouldn't be asleep at the wheel. Nobody should. But especially Christians, I think, as you said uh, before, a head of the sand mentality should be for other people, but not for Christians. Christians should be the thought leaders in this. Christians should want to be the people that others come to when they say, what do you think about all of this? And their answers shouldn't be flippant or dismissive or derogatory. They should be based on deep research and careful and sober analysis. Christians should want their religion to be leading the conversation. They shouldn't want to be the ones suppressing it because of cultural stigma or because our favorite cable news shows said that anyone who thinks about this is crazy. Christians ultimately shouldn't be stifling the progress of the human story by refusing to think about things that scare them or refusing to think about things that they don't understand. Again, just for the record, I don't know what lies on the other side of this whole investigation into UAP and NHI. In many ways, things would be more simple if all of these events turned out to be prosaic. But I really don't know where this journey will take us. And again, someone who says they have all aspects of this figured out, again, we should probably be at least suspicious of this person. But I do think that we as a species have no chance at all to survive potential future revelations, nor do we deserve to survive them if we don't have the courage to stand up and stare it in the face, whatever it is. I'm simply suggesting here that it's not just a human right to know about our place in the universe, but it's a human responsibility, especially if it's true, as Christianity says, that human beings have been put in charge of this place, or that they will be put in charge in the coming kingdom of God. Well, it's, it's probably a, a both and. We put, we're put we put in charge as far as stewardship goes, for sure. Right. And ultimately, to want to find out as much as we can about this world, to want to gain knowledge so that we can act responsibly in light of that knowledge, this should be among the most Christian of traits. This should be the kind of people that Christians endeavor to be. Again, no matter what all of this UAP and NHI mystery ultimately turns out to be. Well, you've brought some really interesting points up, some really helpful ideas to think about, and some good warnings for us. We're going to have to conclude our conversation here. I, I'm sure you could go for quite a bit longer. <laughs> We're going to bring it to a close here. Thank you so much for your time and your thought on this. It's really helpful to consider the different options. And uh, one thing, too, I so appreciate about your approach, Keegan, 
is you're 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 just very fair-minded. You're very open and very fair-minded. You're not dogmatic. You're not insistent. You know, you have your view, which you think is most likely to be correct, but you're charitable to other views that might, in the end, turn out to be more correct. So, uh, thanks so much for that today. Well, you're very welcome, Sean. Thanks for having me on. It was a great conversation and. Hopefully we'll get to discuss these things more as the human journey continues. Well, that brings this interview to a close. What'd you think? Come on over to restitudio.org and find episode 509, Theological Options for Understanding Non-Human Intelligence, and leave your questions and feedbacks and thoughts there. I'm sure you've got lots to process on this, and you may have other ideas that we didn't cover or good, solid reasons why some of the ideas that we mentioned don't work. And uh, whatever it is, I'd love to hear it. So I'm looking forward to getting some feedback on this episode. And we'll have to see as this thing develops, you know, what other evidence will come out? Is this just going to fizzle away and return to a tabloid issue? Is this the most significant moment since the resurrection of Jesus in all of human history? (laughs) Like, it's hard to say at this point from where I sit but uh, I sure am curious, and I don't want to be cold-cocked by discovering that aliens exist or some other thing is going on and not have any theological way of receiving that information and integrating it into my worldview. I certainly don't want to be in that situation, and I don't think you do either. So I think it's worthwhile thinking it through, even though this is kind of a topic with a stigma that a lot of people are hesitant to even engage with, but I do appreciate Chandler's willingness to go there and to talk about this subject. Well, that's going to be it for this episode this week. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. If you're an Apple Podcast listener and you don't mind, uh, we sure would appreciate any ratings or reviews that you'd be willing to provide for the podcast. It really does help people find it. The more reviews in particular really do show people that the the podcast is active. It's it's not a dead podcast. We're over 500 episodes in now, and uh, we, I have no reason to, to slow down or stop. Uh, one a week seems to be a very sustainable pace for me. So thanks to everybody who have already done that, and for those of you who are supporting us on a monthly basis, it sure does help. I've got some exciting news to share about a paper that I submitted for the Unitarian Christian Alliance Conference, but I can't quite talk about it yet because of the double-blind review process. So uh, once I either get accepted or rejected, I, I'm very much looking forward to telling you about this research that I've done and and how it relates to Christology. Well, that's it for today. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. I'll catch you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.